All right, let's sing together.
It's time to worship. You guys will sing this out with us. Put your hands together if you'd like to. Passing in honor, glory and power, brings to the ancient of days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the ancient of days. And tongue in heaven and earth. Glory and nation bow with your throne and worship you be exalted, O oh God, and your kingdom shall not pass away, O oh, ancient of day. We sing blessing and honor, glory and power, bring to the ancient of day. Every nation, all of creation, bow before the ancient of days. And tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every ship bow with your throne. And worship you be exalted, O God. And your kingdom shall not pass away, O ancient of days. Of all the earth, sing to the ancient of days. For none can compare to your master's word. Sing to the ancient of days. And sung in heaven and earth, shall declare glory and nation bow with your throne. And worship you be exalted, O God. Your kingdom shall not pass away Every tongue, every tongue in heaven and earth Shall declare your glory Every knee shall bow with your throne And worship you be exalted, O God And your kingdom shall not pass away Oh, ancient of Amen, you have to take a seat. I'm going to read from Psalm 110. I'd ask you to bow your heads and uh, try to meditate on the words as we read. 
Psalm 110 is the Psalm of David. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way and therefore he will lift up his head. Father God, we recognize as we sing songs to you that you are the great and mighty king of this world, that other empires will pass away, but you are the creator God and you are the conquering king and that we have no hope of standing against you in rebellion. That if we continue in our sin, that we will be crushed. Lord, we we gather as your people, recognizing that we are rebels, that we are sinners, but also recognizing that you are not only the, the creator and the king, but you are also the redeemer and the priest forever that comes to heal us and comes to bring us back to God. And so, Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to heal the division to take care of our sin, to bring us back to you. And we pray that as we continue to worship you as as Father and as as King, that we would also remember you as Savior. And we thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
forgiveness we'll be a people who look to him first and sing this out together
thank you for your grace. God, and all the blessings that you've given us that are undeserved, God, we we thank you for taking us as broken vessels and, and making us whole, God, and filling us with yourself, God. I pray that you will help us to live out the freedom that you have given to us. God, help us to be a people who love you, God, and show it by our actions and our love for others. Help us to listen and and hear your word and put it into action. It's your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. If you will open your Bibles to Matthew 25, no, 22, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Matthew chapter 22, we're continuing our series in Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible, we do have some black Bibles under the chairs, and you can grab one of those if you'd like. We've called our series Kingdom Come, as we've been looking at uh, this portrayal of Jesus as the expectant king, but been looking at the tension of how he's not exactly what they expected. Um, They expected this king to come, this Messiah to come, this Savior to come, uh, but he doesn't always line up exactly with what they thought he would be like. Um, And the image we have there, of course, is the glory and the suffering servant, and we'll see Uh, some different angles today of of how uh, this king is, again, not exactly what they expected. But Jesus will say, really, he was the whole point of the whole Bible. We're calling our sermon today, Missing the Point. Uh, And what we see is these these Jewish leaders, uh, these leaders of God's people at the time, uh, they continue to confront Jesus and want to fight with him because they're missing the point. They're making it about themselves 
instead of understanding that the point of the scriptures, the point of their existence as God's people is about God and about the Messiah that God sends and not about themselves and their priorities. Uh, and so they've gotten things out of order. And uh, you see the, the picture we went with that, that Chris found, I thought this was a kind of a brilliant piece. Um, the idea is that it's really pretty clear, right? The, the path through the maze is, is pretty clear, um, but still we get distracted, right? Still, we can get lost even in a maze like that, right? And, and that just really is a testimony not to the um, lack of clarity in the maze of life, but the lack of clarity in, in ourselves. Um, and that's what we'll see. The last verse of our last section was 2214. The first verse of this section is 2215. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 22, I'm just going to read those two verses, kind of the end verse from last week, the beginning verse from this week. Uh, and then we'll start to kind of unfold it piece by piece as we look at the text. 22:14 and 15. So last week he said, really much to the dismay of the Jewish leaders, he said, For many are invited, but few are chosen. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the idea of God being a choosing God as really comfort to God's people. But it's really assurance that God loves us. We talked about how looking at that through the prism of adoption helps to make sense of it, that God loves us. He adopted us as his very own children. But there's another side to it too, and it's those that presume to be God's children but disrespect God, really hate God but say, hey, I'm his, his child, I'm chosen. He, Jesus was kind of jabbing at them saying, you know, you can, there's such a thing as not being chosen. You, you can think you're it and not be it. And, and so he's trying to um, both on one hand comfort those that are humble but also terrify those that are not humble, terrify those that are proud, that think they're it. And that's the other side of this, and we're going to get into more of it this week. In verse 15 it says, When the Pharisees went out, excuse me, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. So immediately after what we saw last week, Jesus challenging them in these ways, immediately the Pharisees went out, these Jewish leaders, they go out, the religious leaders of his day, they go out and they... They lay plans to try to trap Jesus in his words. And that's what we're going to unfold today as we look at it. But let's pray before we, we dig in deeper. Father, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that, that we would not be like so many religious people that fight you, that miss the point, that instead of worshiping you, worship ourselves. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that your word would do that today. Lord, we know that that's part of what your word does and how it works is your spirit applies it and it softens our stony hearts. And so we just pray that you would do that today, that instead of being stuck on ourselves, we would be able to, to see you and to hear you this morning. So we pray that you would be lifted up and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about uh, getting lost, going through a maze that's really pretty simple, I, I was thinking about the whole idea of uh, getting lost, trying to follow directions. Any of you ever tried to follow Yahoo directions or Google directions or, you know, computer-based directions? Anyone? Raise your hand. Only a few of you. I would, you should buy a computer. I would look into that if I were you, those of you that have never done this. But I'm um, thinking about a computer, internet, it's really cool. But um, it, for those of you that have done it, you can get lost sometimes following these great computer directions, right? Um, sometimes these computer directions mess it all up. Um, just the other day, we were, we were going to somewhere in Houston, and it said turn left on Main Street. And we came up, and I was like, everything else tells me that I'm supposed to turn here, but it says 518. It doesn't say Main Street, you know? 
And I was like, since the computer directions have misled me so many times before, I'm just going to guess that this is actually Main Street, and it becomes Main Street like two miles down the road, and the computer's just not smart enough to figure that out. And we were actually right. So I kind of, I out, you know, I out, uh, outthought the computer that time, and we, we made it, and we got to where we were trying to go. Because usually they just, they give you the wrong street, or they tell you, you know, merge, merge again, merge again, and you're like in one lane, you know, have you ever done that one? It's, like, merge again, point one mile, point one mile, merge left, merge right, and you're just in the access road. But anyway, one time, we, we followed the directions, and the directions were actually uh, perfect, and, and they led us to where we wanted to go. We even, we even got sidetracked. We were in Dallas. We were going to this restaurant. Someone had given us a, a gift certificate to go out to this cool restaurant. It was a favorite of some friends. Um, and we even took a detour of our own accord, drove to this other side of Dallas because I saw some old streets I remembered where my grandparents lived. I was like, oh, I got to go see my grandparents' old house. So we took a detour, drove around forever, finally found their house. It had been like repainted and remodeled, so it took me forever. I had to call my mom and get the address. Finally found my grandparents' house. We're like, all right, cool, there it is. All right, it's all different now. And we left. We, we went back to the restaurant, and the directions were perfect. We got right back on the road, followed the directions, and there we were. And we drove up, and... Uh, the sign said, like, closed at 7.30. I was like, what kind of restaurant closes at 7.30? This is crazy. You know, we've got this gift certificate. When are we going to be in Dallas again to eat at the restaurant? And we were so disappointed. You know, there's the sign, and I just, I didn't know what to do. I mean, we traveled all that way. The directions were flawless, and they got us to where we wanted to be, but then it, it didn't work out. Um, we'd, we'd missed it because of the time. And I was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll just turn around and go somewhere else. So we're, we're starting to pull out and kind of make a U-turn in the driveway and turning around. Then I noticed this building next door and all these happy people coming in and out of this building next door. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. That kind of looks like a business. At first, I thought it was a house. And then I realized and saw this little dark, dimly lit sign around the corner. And that was actually the restaurant. The restaurant had two businesses. It was like their little farm-to-market business over here and then their, their real restaurant on this side. And so we'd, after all those perfect directions, come all the way to the end of the road, but still missed it. We just, we just didn't see the obvious. It was right there. I mean, we were, it was like the parking lots were right there next to each other. It was building A, building B, and we were just looking at the thing that had grabbed our attention and thinking, oh, this must be it. They're closed. Wow, everything's messed. Our planes are all ruined. When the whole time it was right there. The whole time the directions had actually led us to the right place, but we had still missed it. We'd still missed it. And I think we often do that with the scriptures. The scriptures are clear. I think the scriptures are like the picture we have on the PowerPoint of, of the maze where, yeah, there's all this detail and there's all this complexity in the Bible and there are layer upon layer and you could, you could devote your life to studying it. I mean, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years now. I've been a very avid Bible reader and Bible student. And I know there's just, there's years ahead of me. You know, I mean, I'm, I haven't even scratched the surface. There's so much more to learn. But hopefully I've, I've gotten the main point. And the main point is Jesus. And the main point is God and who he is and what he desires to do for us and to do through us. But so often we, we miss it, right? There's this great billboard for this other church, Chop, this uh, Christian house of prayer in town. And I don't really know the church that well. seems like most people I've known there are pretty nice folks. And, you know, I'm sure I would disagree with some things there. Maybe, I, you know, I've never visited there. But, but I love their billboard. Their billboard says it's all about him. Their billboard says it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. That's the main point. And we have to be very careful not to miss the point. And that's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. They were missing the point. And not only were they missing it, but they were on purpose missing it. They were misleading others. And, and next week we're going to get into chapter 23 where there are these woes, these 
condemnations that Jesus speaks upon them for misleading others as well. But this week, we'll see them trying to trap Jesus, trying to lure Jesus into the winding roads, the, the maze on the side over here and the maze on the side over there, and trying to, trying to draw him into all the complexities of theology and difficult passages. And Jesus just keeps bringing it back to the main point. And he keeps saying, you're not, you're not getting it. This is the point. There's a term for this whole, whole idea that the scriptures are clear, that we can read the scripture and get the main point. It's called the perspicuity of the scriptures. Great word, right? Perspicuity? You want to try to say that? Perspicuity? Very good. All right. It's, it's kind of one of those silly words in theology because we never use it in real life, you know? Like it only has this theological purpose. But basically what it means is that the scriptures are clear. And again, they're not clear at every level. They're clear about the main point, the main point being God, his love for us, our sin, our need of him. Those basics, the scriptures are clear about that. And so that's that theology. And Martin Luther actually wrote about this in his book, The Bondage of the Will. I don't want to read this to you so that we can understand how, how the scriptures are unclear to us and unclear to the Pharisees, religious leaders, and how they can be clear to us. He says, if many things still remain abstruse to many, that means unclear, this does not arise from obscurity in the scriptures, but from our own blindness or lack of understanding, who do not go the way to see the all-perfect clearness of the truth. Let therefore wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to the all-clear scriptures of God. What he's saying is the scriptures are unclear because uh, we're unclear about it, because we're stubborn. And, and he's saying let, let that cease to be the case where we say the scriptures are unclear because we have a hardness of heart in ourselves. It says, if you speak of the internal clearness, no man sees one iota in the scriptures, but he hath the Spirit of God. So he's saying you can't see anything without the Spirit of God. If you speak of the external clearness, nothing whatever is left obscure or ambiguous, but all things that are in the scriptures are by the word brought forth into the clear light and proclaimed to the whole world. Basically, to summarize what Luther's saying in all this kind of ancient languages, is basically when the scriptures are unclear, it's because our hearts are hard. Now, I'm not talking about all the complicated, you know, I'm not talking about all the side issues. I'm talking about the main point, the main idea. Don't miss the point. And when we miss the point, it's because of our own hardness of heart. It's us saying, I don't want to talk about that. I'd rather talk about all the unclear, weird side issues. And we use that as, as a way to escape really dealing with God head on and dealing with who he is and what he wants to do in our life. We use it as a way, like the Pharisees, to lay a trap for Jesus. And we end up laying a trap for our own souls. The first section, I think, is we, are, uh, we see the Pharisees missing the point of their own rebellion. We see the Pharisees missing the point of their own rebellion, and we see this in verses 16 through 22. So if you read verses 16 through 22, it says, They sent their disciples, so this is the Pharisees, to him along with the Herodians. So they've got two kind of rival groups. These are kind of different sects among the Pharisees, Herodians, those who cooperated more uh, with Roman rule. The Pharisees were more independent, more kind of conservative uh, Bible believers. And they say, Teacher, they said, We know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they're, they're buttering him up here, right? Because you know they're trying to lay a trap. So they're basically lying through their teeth. They're saying, We know you're great, you're truthful. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they're laying a trap here, right? Because nobody wants to be oppressed by Roman rule. I mean, those of you that are conservatives and don't like to pay taxes, it was about ten times worse if you were under the oppressive thumb of Roman rule. Uh, these guys held them down. They abused them. They were paying for 
uh, abusive mercenary armies of Rome uh, by taxing these people and stripping away their independence. And then you throw in the whole religious aspect of these were godless pagan Roman rulers, right? They claimed to be gods that, that tried to lead people to worship other gods. And so you can see there's double reasons, both economic and religious, to want to rebel against Rome and to think we shouldn't be paying taxes to them. So, so should, we, should we pay him or not? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Caesar was the emperor, the ruler of Rome. Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, key piece there, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, literally you actors, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this? Whose image, literally, and whose inscription? Well, it's Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. When they heard this, they were amazed. They left him, they went away. He had, he had uh, defeated the argument, really in a very simple way. He said, Whose picture, whose image, icon, this word that we use throughout the scriptures to talk about the image of God, whose image is on the coin? Well, it was the image of Caesar. An image, and then in, he said, and whose inscription? And they said, the inscription, also Caesar's. The inscription would say something along the lines of Caesar, the, you know, son of the gods, or, or the divine Caesar, or, you know, some kind of, it had this kind of pagan, he's God kind of inscription on there, which, of course, would offend them further. But, but Jesus is saying, Who's, whose coin is it? Who does the coin belong to? Whose image is stamped on the coin? They said, Caesar. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But what else does he say? He says, and give to God what is God's. What, what belongs to God? Where do we see God's image stamped? Where do we see God's image stamped? Throughout the Bible, it's clear that we see God's image stamped on us. We are his coin. We are his stamped image. We are the image of God. And the Bible makes it clear that we belong to him. It is our job to reflect him, to give glory back to him, not to rebel against him, but to honor him. And Jesus is being real clear. You know, it's not that big of a deal to give the taxes to the guy. He's the ruler. Uh, and the real problem is your own heart because you don't want to give yourself to God. That's the real issue here. That's the real issue. You're using Caesar as a decoy. You're using that as, as a way to move around the problem of your own rebellion, that, that we're in rebellion against God, and you don't want to give yourself to God. That's, that's really the issue here. That's the root problem. I found a picture of a riot going on because I, I wanted us to kind of get a, a strong image of rebellion, uh, of some, someone shaking their fist and saying, we, we don't want you to rule us. And, and that's what we say to God. That's how we live. We say, no, I don't, I don't want you to domineer. I don't want you to dominate. I don't want you to lead me. I don't want you to be my boss. I don't want you to be my Caesar, my emperor, my king. Say, so God, I, I would rather do my own thing. And so we riot, we rebel. And the Pharisees, as religious as they are, are in rebellion against God too. And what they do, they do it the same way we do it. They say, no, it's those bad people, the prostitutes and tax collectors, they're in rebellion against God. But we're religious, we're Pharisees. We read our Bibles. We strap the little pieces of leather to our forehead that have Bible verses in it. You know the phylacteries? We'll, we'll talk about that more next week. They, they, they had uh, drenched their lives with God's word but refused still to give their hearts to God, refused to give their very souls and their very life to God. They were missing 
the point. They're getting sidetracked in the, uh, in the maze, missing the point, that the passage that brings them right to God. They owe their whole life to God, everything they have. Getting sidetracked in the finer points of theology and how government relates to church and state and all these kind of arguments and missing the point that they owe their life to God, that they belong to Him, that His image is stamped on them and they should give themselves back to Him. Paul expands on this and gives us our application real clearly in Romans 13. In Romans 13, 1, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment by themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right. He will commend you. For he is God's servant to you to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their time full-time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul says it's very clear as Christians, we are to honor those that God has placed in authority over us. We are to pay taxes. We are to honor them. Now, I think it is a little complex living in America because we have this weird ownership that we are at part of a democracy. We are part of the leadership in a weird way. So we always have the right to complain. We have the right to throw leadership out and bring in new leadership. So, so at some level, we are more kind of, we're, we're more kind of caught up in the leadership of the country. We are at some level princes and princesses in this country the way it's designed. And so that makes it more complex, right? That makes it more difficult. But whoever's the leader at the time, we are to submit to. We are to honor. We are to give respect to. We are to pay taxes. If you don't like the way things are, we'll vote. But don't rebel. Honor who God has instituted an authority over you. And make sure you don't use government, you don't use these side <coughs> issues as a reason to, as a reason to uh, overlook your own rebellion, as a reason to overlook the problem in your own heart. Paul, Paul wasn't talking about some wonderful, godly government here when he was saying to, to submit to those that were in charge. Paul was talking about an oppressive, pagan, evil Roman rule. That's what Paul was talking about here when he said, they're instituted by God to punish wrongdoing. And we have a role, we have a job to submit to those that are in authority. The next thing that we see is that we often miss our death. We see the Pharisees now trying to uh, sidetrack on the idea of uh, death. And this one's a little more complex, um, but this is dealing with the Sadducees, who probably would, would be more like the liberal Christians of our day, if we were to try to understand kind of what sect this is. You know, we had the Pharisees that were the conservative Bible believers, and then we had the Sadducees that were more like the liberals. They cooperated with government. They didn't believe in the resurrection. We'll see. You know, they only kind of held the part of the Bible, but not all of it. So we'll look at this in verses 23 through 33. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. So I say they miss the problem of their own death because they deny the resurrection. And then now we'll get into the question, which seems kind of disconnected. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second 
and the third, right on down to the seventh brother. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So, so they don't believe in the resurrection. Again, they're, they're kind of like the liberals, right? They don't believe in this life after death thing. So they try to come up with this weird ethical problem. They just kind of make it up and say, so then, see, doesn't that throw a kink in the whole works here? Doesn't that ruin your whole idea of resurrection and afterlife? You've got these issues in the law. How can the law then contradict? Because there's no way to reconcile what the law tells us to do, what Moses tells us to do. There's no way to reconcile that then with the afterlife because then you've got, God wouldn't want her to have seven husbands, would he? You know, I mean, how does that all work out? This is Jesus' answer. This is Jesus' answer. Listen, in 29, Jesus replied, You are an error that literally in the Greek it's you wander. You're, you're, you're wandering off track. You're, you're lost in the weeds here. It says you're an error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the living. Excuse me, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, just, just to address, I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with the Pharisees, right? But just to address, because this is something we always get caught up on, that Jesus says there's no marriage, no giving in marriage in heaven. So a lot of us are confused. And, and I think we can make most sense of that because we understand that as God's people, we are being married, being made one with God. And that's the ultimate reality that we look forward to. Now, I don't think it just means, you know, we float around and play harps. I, I think it will be physical. It, it, it's a glorious, uh, sinless creation. So it's not non-physical. I mean, it's going to be everything great and good that you can imagine, um, but better, okay? So it's not like it's going to be bad. And, you know, so don't think of it as like, oh, I don't get to have these wonderful joys and pleasures that I have on this earth. No, it's going to be more. It's going to be better. But to some degree, we won't be married because we will be married to God. We'll be one with him. And somehow we'll all be one with each other and, and everything will be fine. And we're not going to really worry about it because everything's going to be a whole lot better then than it is now. But like I said, that's, that's kind of getting lost in the weeds because Jesus says the issue here is their unbelief in the resurrection. The issue is not really marriage. They don't care about marriage. They're talking about life and death. And they're saying there can't really be life after death because of these ethical issues. But they're just using the ethical issues to play games. They're using the ethical issues. They're using these law issues. They're going to some Bible verses that Moses wrote and saying, see, that, that proves us, that justifies us. And so, see, there's not really life after death. And Jesus says, no, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And obviously, you don't understand how dead you are and that you need God to give you resurrection life. And through, throughout the Gospels, it makes it clear that we need spiritual life now, that 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 heaven and salvation is not just a ticket to get us past death to the other side, but we're dead now. In Ephesians 2, it says that we, that, we were, uh, that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, and Christ made us alive with him, that we were dead. When I used to teach junior high students, I used to say, you know, that doesn't mean you're kind of kicking on the top of the water, <coughs> saying, help me, help me. That, that means you're dead. You're on the bottom of the water, and and fish are like picking at you. You know, you're, you're a dead body down the bottom. You need to be resurrected. And Ephesians says that's the condition of our lives. Sure, we're walking around, going out and getting ice cream. We're, we're doing stuff, but we're dead. And we miss it. And like the, like the Sadducees here, we can play games with God's word to try to make it less clear than it is. And it's very clear that we're dead and we need, we need new life. We don't just need, you know, five ways to improve the life we have now. 
We need life. We don't have life. We can only improve it by being resurrected. I found a picture here, and I apologize, it's shocking, but I think we need to be shocked. Uh, It's a picture of a dead body in a morgue. There's something horrible about death. Um, None of us like to to see a family member die. None of us like even to see a, a dead animal, right? You see a dead animal on the side of the road. None of us like to see that. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's our own sin and brokenness that makes things die, that makes us die, that the the, the world is dead and it's all caught up in, in this death. And Romans says that all of creation is groaning to be released from this. And that someday when God finishes all the work that he's doing and and the sons of God, us, appear with him and our adoption is made complete, he's going to fix the whole world. There's not going to be any more death. And that's that's what we hope in. That's what we look forward to. But don't don't use the scripture. Don't use the complexities of the scripture as an excuse to fight God on this one and to think that you have life and you just need to tweak it a little bit. To think that that you're okay, you've kind of got it together and you just need to get a few things in order and then your life will be better. No, you need life. You need life and you can only find that through Jesus, through his resurrection, through his forgiveness. The last thing we see is missing God's love. The Pharisees are missing God's love. Skipping there. Read in verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So, so it keeps kind of bouncing around. You know, every, every people group is wanting to fight him. You've got the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then you've got the Sadducees, and now the Pharisees are going to go at it again. And, and it's kind of bouncing around. And like I said earlier, we all find excuses to wander off into the weeds and rebel against God and not see him as, as the main point. And we miss the point. So hearing this, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If if you approach law... Going back to what we said earlier, from a standpoint of, I just need to fix a few things in my life, and the law can fix that, then you'll get endlessly lost in the details of the law. Because the law goes far beyond our ability to keep. And the scriptures are clear. You know, when Peter and, and the apostles were talking about how do we reconcile you know, non-Jewish believers with, with Jewish believers, and how do we make a church that fits together, and you know, Peter said... You know, we and our brothers have never been able to bear the yoke of the law. None of us have ever really been able to keep it. None of us have been able to do this in, in, when they were talking about it in Acts 15. But the law, there's, there's too much there. And Jesus says you've got to understand the point of the law. The point of it is that, that we've all missed how to love. We missed God's love. We don't love each other as we should. And the law commands it. The law is saying love someone. You know, it's like telling your kids to apologize when they've done something bad. All right, say you're sorry. They're like, sorry. You You can't really make them love each other. You can't make them repent. And and the way we handle that in our family is like, okay, well, tell them what you did was wrong. And then hopefully maybe God will change your heart and later you'll feel sorry about it. But but the the law can't force us to love each other, right? The law can't force us to love each other. But that's what the law lays out. The law lays out you don't love each other and you should. So love each other. 
And as we come to the law and as we, we butt up against that and as we try to do what the law says, one of two things will happen. One is, well, I think really there's three options. One is, is we'll think, ah, oh, forget that, that's too hard, and we'll just run away from it, right? And that's not really loving people. We, we can make it sound nice, we can say we're following our own heart or whatever, but that's not really loving as, as God prescribes in the law. The other thing that we can do is we can say, I can do this. And we just pick out like our, fi our five favorite laws, right? There's like 10,000, and we pick out five and go, I'm doing these, I'm really good. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that, and I'm really a holy person. And then we spend a lot of time looking at others that, that do the things that we don't do. We see them in the store and we're like, hey, they're bad people. They do the thing that I don't do. Look at how great I am. And, you know, so it's this self-justifying process that we go through, right? But we've only picked out our five favorite laws, the five that we're best at, and we forget all the others. But, but the third option, the gospel option of the law, is, is butting up against it and saying, I don't have God's love. I've missed it. I don't love people like I should. And we're broken by it. And that's what the New Testament tells us is the rightful response to the law. That we would be broken by it and driven to Christ. And this is the theme really of all of Galatians and many other books in the New Testament. That, that when we approach the law honestly and really deal with it on its own terms, we realize I, I can't love like God loves. I don't love my neighbors like I should. I don't love my friends like I should. I don't love my family like I should. And we're broken by it and we realize that we need a Savior that we need fixing, that we need God's love to come in from the outside and change us so that we would actually love each other, so that we would actually care. And Jesus says these two go together. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And those two go together. If, if you don't love God, you won't love your neighbor. So if you're the religious type that's trying to self-justify yourself and you're saying you love God but you really don't care about people, God's saying, no, First John ties that together and says, no, you don't really love God. Then. You don't love your brothers. You don't love your sisters. Then you really don't love God. They, they go together. They all hang together. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets, everything they wrote hangs on this. There's this kind of this hippie mystique about love, right? I, I found a picture. Those are the Beatles. They have that song, All You Need Is Love. You remember that song? I looked it up and I tried to analyze the lyrics and it was kind of strange because I thought, well, I can kind of like pick it apart and say, you know, this is what they say, but Jesus says this. Kind of do a contrast thing. But it, it was so vague, there was really nothing to pick apart. You know what I mean? There was nothing bad in the song. All you need is love. Love is all you need. All you need is love. Love is all you need. It just kind of goes on and on. And there's some other verses too. But I was like, oh, well, okay, I guess they're, they're kind of right, I guess, you know. One for the Beatles. Good job. But, but, but as I, I thought about it, I thought, you know, that, that's kind of, again, it's kind of loose. It's kind of vague. There, there's no content there. And so I can say that I love people all day long. But if I don't love God and if I'm not challenged by his standards, which are really perfection, absolute love, then again, I'm falling short. I'm not really loving as God desires us to love. And it, so it's, you can't just have this hippie mystique and go, oh, I never hurt anybody. Well, did you ever help anybody? Did you ever do anything that matters? Have you made any contribution in this world? So again, the, the, the scriptures push us way beyond our understanding of love, our understanding of law. We, we tend to focus on just the little area that we can handle. Forget how vast and how big it is and how far beyond 
us it is. And when we really honestly face it, then we know we need a Savior. Then we know we need help. We need someone to work through us and to change us from, from the inside out. So I'd ask you really two applications is, do you love God? Do you love God? Big, big picture. And again, that doesn't just mean, you know, worshiping on, on Sunday morning. That's, yeah, that's important. That's part of it. But do you love other people? And do you love God and do you love other people the way he says in his word that we should? Because he outlines it. His, the scriptures give us clear guidelines of what it means to love people. It's not just this vague, hippie ideal, but, but there's real ways that we do that. Real ways that we sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others. Well, the conclusion, Jesus now turns the tables around and questions the questioners. And the conclusion, Jesus turns it around and he questions the questioners. And we see this in verses 41 through 46. And I read Psalm 110 during uh, the, the worship time earlier uh, to kind of prepare our minds for this. But Jesus is basically going to quote from Psalm 110, and he gives some teaching here. In Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and 5, and I think it's 5, 6, and 7, in Hebrews there's a lot of teaching on Psalm 110 also. Uh, but just so you know, Psalm 110 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Which is really interesting because it's all this talk about him crushing people and stacking up bodies and all that. You know, it's like it's not really our kind of New Testament, all you need is love kind of uh, ideal. It's, it doesn't really fit with what we would think about necessarily. But, but it's talking about this, this coming king that's going to crush evil and make all things right. That's going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a healer and a king together in one. So in verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's a very obvious question. The son of David, they replied. Jesus has been called this throughout Matthew, right? The son of David. He's in the line, right? He's going to be the Messiah. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, again, this is just a side note. This is extra. You don't have to pay for this. This is extra. Jesus is saying that the Psalms are inspired. That David, when he's writing the Psalms, he's speaking by the Spirit. Again, and that goes along with what we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, by God. Here Jesus is, is saying that also. Saying David, speaking by the Spirit in that psalm, Psalm 110, calls him Lord. How is it that David calls the Messiah Lord if it's his son? Speaking by the Spirit, he calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They were done. He had just shut them down. Psalm 110 says, The Lord, the kind of capital L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the, the Yahweh, that very personal covenantal name for God that we see throughout the scriptures, that all caps Lord said to my Lord. So David, David, King David is saying, Yahweh has said to my future Lord, this Messiah yet to come, sit at my right feet, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we have God speaking to the coming Messiah and David calling the coming Messiah Lord. David calling his son, the Messiah that will come from his own line, calling him Lord. And David is saying, if, if he's the son of David, why does he call him Lord? Why does he call him Lord? And he's calling everybody back to this text. And when you dig deeper into the text, you see some amazing things where this coming Messiah is, Messiah is basically equated with God. 
And we see that, that the Messiah, the king that they're waiting for, the one that they need, the point of the scriptures that the son of Eve will come to conquer evil, that this man, the son of Eve, will come and fix everything. And we, we get more clues about that. It's going to come through Abraham's line. He's going to bless the whole world, right? That's the promise made to Abraham. And then we have a special people, a nation formed in Exodus. And, and so we understand more specifics. It's going to come through this nation. And we understand a king, kingly line is set up and promises are made to David that it's going to be his son that's going to have this forever kingdom. So we get more and more and more specifics. And then there's this little, this little psalm hiding in the middle of the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, that says... He's not just going to be an earthly Messiah. He's not just going to be a son of David. He's also going to be a son of God. He's going to be David's Lord. He's going to be greater than David. And when you read Psalm 110, you see all this flushed out that he will rule as God himself. I'm going to read Psalm 110 one more time, and then we're going to close. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you'll receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Saying you're not going to be a Levitical priest. You're, you're from the line of David, but you'll also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a different kind of priesthood, a priest forever. So you're going to be not only a king, but also a priest, and you'll have to go to Hebrews to see the rest of that worked out. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The picture from Psalm 110 is that he will conquer. And he's not just going to be a son of David, but he will be divine. He will rule as God. He will conquer the whole world. And we can miss the point. We can rebel and come up with excuses and talk about, well, what about this peculiarity of this text? And what about what this verse says over here? Or we can see our need, our brokenness, that we are dead and we need life. We can see that we don't really know how to love. We, we can see how much we are missing and that we need him to fix us and submit ourselves to him, give ourselves over to him and ask him to give us life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that not only are you this mighty king that will crush evil, but that you give us a way out because we know we're a part of the evil in this world. And so, Father, we, we pray for mercy and we ask that you would remember us through your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be covered by his blood. And we celebrate that, that he is the Messiah that has come, not just the son of David, but the son of God. And so we pray that you would teach us and shape us by that gospel Lord, help us to, to be diligent to know your scriptures, uh, but not to get lost in the details and miss you and have, have stubborn hearts that rebel against you, have stubborn hearts that remain dead because we don't come to you for life, have, have stubborn hearts that don't love because we get lost in the, the details of the law. But Lord, help us to, to come to you, that you would change us and use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Stay with us as we sing this last song.
became sin Who knew no sin We might become His righteousness Humbled Himself And carried the cross Love so amazing Love so
Messiah 